Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. So let me start with a question. How good are you with money, purchases, investments, all of that world? I I know of a woman who is given a $100 bonus at work, and to celebrate, she went out and spent $400. Maybe not such a good business decision. So how would you rate your money smarts, your business acumen, on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, 1 being a fool and his money are soon parted, terrible with finances, 10 being the Midas touch. Everything you do or work at turns to gold. Some of us, a lot of us are probably a five or six adequate with our finances, staying within our income, buying carefully only what we need, saving a little bit and investing. Some of us might score pretty low. We, we need some coaching. We've overextended our credit cards. Uh, We need to cut back, reduce our spending patterns, and and learn to live within our means. A few of us might score an eight or nine. Uh, We're really good at this, exceptionally proficient at making and investing money. I think of Warren Buffett. Many of you know the name, 91-year-old from Nebraska. He's probably a 10 on this scale. He's known as the sage or the oracle of Omaha because he's considered the best investor of our times. He's built an investment company and personal worth that the last time I checked with the stock markets wobbling, but earlier this week was estimated at 113 billion. All the companies that he has shares in and owns part of. Pretty impressive. That kind of success, I think it requires full-time research, wisdom, some initial luck, patience, knowing what and when to buy. Stocks, real estate, property, shares, knowing. That's a tough challenge. For those of us who don't have the time or the smarts to be a Warren Buffett, how can we at least make wise purchases and build some savings for our retirement or to pass on to the next generation? Well, I'm guessing many of you already know this, one of the recommendations has always been buy real estate. And when you do, pay down your mortgage quickly. Don't go for decades paying interest on it. Land doesn't wear out or depreciate like a car does. Cars are a poor investment. Land, much better. Comedian Bob Hope was asked a generation ago why he was always buying land in the L.A. area and around the the counties around Los Angeles in Southern California. And Bob Hope smiled and he said, 
Why do I keep buying? Because they stopped making it. Well, he's right. So land is usually a pretty good investment unless, unless it's in a suburb of Kiev or Mariupol in the Ukraine just before the Russian invasion. Or a house in Berlin in 1944 as the Allied bombing is beginning. Or a shack in New Orleans as Hurricane Katrina is approaching a dozen, 15 years ago. What and when can change the wisdom of some purchase? So thinking about all of that, the prophet Jeremiah might have been making a huge mistake with his land purchase. On the surface, it looks like a dumb buy. But then Jeremiah didn't do it for his retirement portfolio. He was making a statement, maybe to himself, but especially to his neighbors and the nation around him. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to give me four minutes to explain some history, the backstory. I won't stick there forever, but I want to tell you what was going on there so we can begin to hopefully understand what was Jeremiah thinking in doing this. The year was 587 BC. We know exactly when. It's a historical record. 587 BC, basically 600 years before Jesus. The Babylonian army is encamped and surrounding Jerusalem and the countryside. The Hebrew Israelite people have rebelled twice against Nebuchadnezzar and he is angry. The emperor is, he's so angry he has committed to wipe out this nation. And so he's starving them out. The Babylonians will reduce the people of Jerusalem to starvation and their monarchy and their government to oblivion. That's the plan. If there are any alive when the Babylonian army marches in through the gates, they will be gathered, dragged off to a foreign land to work as slaves. There is no hope. And at just that moment, something defiantly hopeful happens. This man by the name of Jeremiah, prophet of God, has been predicting all of this. He has been telling the Hebrew king, he's been telling the people that because of their sins and their rebellion, they are going to suffer. And for his proclamation, which is considered traitorous, he is thrown into jail in Jerusalem and he's held in the, by the palace guard. And just at that moment, with the Babylonians at the gate, the city about to fall, the people starving and dying, Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, shows up and asks Jeremiah to buy a plot of land to invest in real estate. It's bizarre. 
The field, by the way, just a little more history. The field is in the suburb of Anathoth, just northeast of the city wall, which is to say the field has the enemy army encamped on it, which is to say Jeremiah will never farm this land. He will never be able to sell it or gain. It can't be in any meaningful way used and no financial benefit because economic and political infrastructure is about to collapse and be overrun by the enemy. And Jeremiah does the unthinkable and he buys the field. And then in a very public display that's almost ceremonial, he summons his friend Baruch, the local magistrate, and some other witnesses. He seals the deal, transfers the deed in a very conspicuous manner, has it installed into an earthen jar, has Baruch seal it and bury it. Things are terrible and they are going to get worse and everybody knows it. And Jeremiah says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. He's making a statement and he's making a visual declaration. What do we take from a story like this? It is bizarre. Why would he do this? The situation is a mess. It's a disaster on wheels and it's happening in real time to them. You know what that's like, right? Some of you are feeling confronted right now by life's challenges these days. It's looking pretty dark in many places in our world. Of anyone on the planet, we in southern Ontario in the GTA probably have it about as good as it exists on the planet right now, and yet we know the enemy is at the gate in many ways. Health, finances, things are pretty bad. Bad things are happening to good people. Things are looking grim. I read an article earlier this week in the Atlantic Monthly, and this article was entitled, listen to this, quite ominous a title, A Crisis Historian Has Some Bad News for Us. That's the title of the piece. A crisis historian has some bad news for us. The world is living through what Adam Tooze describes as a polycrisis, multi-crisis. Tooze is the director of the European Institute. He talks through a list of challenges, and you know them, but let me read the list that he, he uh, gives. War raising the specter of nuclear conflict. We know that Putin has threatened that, hinted at it. Climate change, threatening famine, flood, and fire. Inflation, forcing central banks to crush consumer demand. The pandemic, closing factories and overloading hospitals. Each of these crises is enough, hard enough to handle by itself. The interconnectedness, the mess, of all of them is more so. 
And Tews feels, quote, the whole of all of these polycrises is even more dangerous than the sum of the parts. Did I mention that right now things are looking grim in many places in our world? Now I'm going to come back to Jeremiah in a few moments and his buying of the field in face of disaster, but let me take, make a preliminary statement. I want, I want to start with something positive here. And this statement is this. It's a piece of wisdom that was given to me. The bad news is always reported, but it's not, it's usually not the whole story. That's the statement. Here's how it came to me. A dozen years ago, I was visiting my dad and mom at a nursing home residence, seniors residence, and I went to visit them and I took them emails and photographs that I'd got from the internet. Our daughter, Leslie, our oldest daughter, sent them from Moscow, Russia. She was living there for several months doing historical research at a former Soviet institute. So I showed my mom and dad pictures of Leslie standing in Red Square, and then I read to them her account, her descriptions of her flat where she lived in the city, the market around the corner where she could buy fresh vegetables, and the vast efficiency of the Moscow Metro, and the welcome and friendship she received from Russian neighbors as they taught her words and phrases so she could shop at the market and in the stores. My father, six weeks into chemo for the second time, the cancer, the lymphoma had come back nine years after the first round, but my father sitting there listened to all of this, nodding and with a little smile, and then he said that word of wisdom. The bad news is always reported, but it's usually not the whole story. And that seared into my brain. He went on saying, you'd never know about all this good that Leslie is telling us in Moscow if you only listen to the broadcast news. A month before, they were reporting major fires out in the countryside that were threatening the city. Some of you may remember this. A dozen years ago, there were fires out around Moscow. We hear about crime, poverty, unrest in Russia. That's what we get from our news. But, my dad said, people are living good lives. The locals are welcoming strangers and being kind to foreigners. He's right. So I ask that we all remember this when we're feeling afraid or depressed or discouraged about things in our world. The bad news is not the whole story. However, sometimes it truly is a changing moment in history, the end of the world as we know it. When Hitler marched into Poland on September 1st, 1939, that was the end of Europe's troubled peace and all nations on that continent we're set on a path of change that is still going on and evolving. When the planes hit the tw Twin Towers 21 years ago, 
the world of relaxed travel and international freedoms ended, and much more rolled out of that. Life is different now. So examining Jeremiah's story and his purchase of land during a time of crisis and disaster can be valuable and helpful, and that's where I want to focus now. What might be our takeaway from Jeremiah? I'm thinking two things. Firstly, the long view is where your hope is. The long view is where your hope is. There are ups and downs in life and in history. There are smooth seasons and tough times in every life. Periods of history and the cycle of life mean that whatever is happening will not last forever. Sometimes, sometime, the trouble will end and good days will return, always. Jeremiah bought land knowing the city was about to be defeated and destroyed. Its people would be carried away into exile and slavery for 70 years, three generations, so that only descendants would come back to Jerusalem. Jeremiah would never get to use this land, but his descendants would. Those living now would die in exile in a foreign land. So Jeremiah sealed the new deed into a long-term safety deposit box, a jar buried in the earth. Proof of his ownership would be there for later generations, and Jeremiah looked to the long term. He was willing to be patient and see past the situation now to the hope in the future. Yet once more, houses and lands and vineyards will be bought and sold, says the Lord. Jeremiah believed, trusted, and acted in that hope. I'm going to say a couple names and a couple quotes. Robert Schuller said one time, tough times never last, but tough people do. Winston Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. Now, I know both of those quotes are a little cheesy, and some people don't like or have criticisms of either of those men. Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral in California, Churchill, prime minister during the Second World War. And yet, the reality is the long view is where your hope is. Keep going. Wait it out. And usually, eventually, things will get better. So that's my first response. But there's something else. For people of faith, there's this. The long view with God is a certain hope. That is hope, a defiant hope based on trust in God from whom nothing will separate us. Just a few pages away from this story of Jeremiah buying the field, Listen to Jeremiah chapter 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans 
to give you a future and a hope. From that comes a resilient, defiant hopefulness in the midst of disaster. Characteristic disaster that could wipe people out, but the characteristic that has characterized God's people down through the centuries is this defiant hope and trust. In the Babylonian exile that we're looking at in the 6th century BC, in times of Roman persecution in the 1st century of Jesus, as the Vikings sacked the monasteries in the first millennial, a thousand, as fires of persecution burned against the reformers in the Middle Ages. Listen to this. A pastor in 1636, his town decimated by a 30-year war, the Black Plague killing off thousands. His, he's the only priest minister left in his European city. 50 to 100 people are dying every day. And in the middle of all of that, Martin Rinkert sits down and writes, Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices. A defiant hope, a faith that is unshakable. Even in Auschwitz, the death camp, as Jews condemned to gas chambers, observed the Sabbath anyway. A defiant hope. Sitting in his Gestapo prison cell in 1944, waiting for his own execution, Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer remembered this story from Jeremiah. And Bonhoeffer, in his letters and papers from prison, wrote this, just as the holy city is about to be destroyed, He's thinking of Jeremiah in Jerusalem. The purchase of this land is a sign and a pledge of better things to come, just when all seemed blackest. Thinking and acting for the coming generations, but taking each day as it comes without fear and anxiety. That is the spirit in which we are forced to live in practice in 1944. It is not easy to be brave and to hold out, but it is imperative. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison. In the darkest days, with the enemy at the gate, Jeremiah purchased property, invested in the future, an act of defiant hope. What we dare to believe is that even in the darkness, <clears throat> when we can't see our way out or forward, God is with us. What we dare to believe is that the most powerful reality in this world is the eternal love of God. What we dare to believe is that the last word spoken about each one of us will not be a word of death. It will be a word of love from which nothing can separate us. What we dare to believe is that God is Lord of the future. God calls us into the future with courage and with hope. So what's our situation and what's our response to it? I think our situation is much better than Jeremiah faced. Yes, we have challenges, environmental. 
Will global warming and the resulting droughts lower the Great Lakes by a meter or more? And will the ice cap melt so that our seas raise two meters or more? We have a situation with the economy. Are we going to have double dip inflation and recession? Or will we have a slow, gradual recovery? Society and culture. Is technology decreasing our personal skills? Is multiculturalism overwhelming some people's ability to tolerate and adapt? And then what about any of us personally? The challenges we face, whether it's health, finances, relationships, work. But let's cast our vision out ahead. Jeremiah bought a field that he couldn't take possession of for 70 years. It would pass down to those who followed him. But he bought it as a spiritual investment. He put his money where his faith was. Where do you think the world will be 70 years from now? What is God's dream? What is God dreaming about out into God's eternal future? I don't expect any of us to have instant detailed answers. And yet, we can live with a confidence and assured certainty that all will be well. In the end, the eternal God wins. Love, peace. So let's downshift our anxiety levels and become calmly receptive to what God dreams of doing. And then let's trust and lean into that future and that hope. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, give us the eyes of faith to see as Jeremiah did. Give us the bifocals of faith that recognize reality today and yet see beyond the present hardships and challenges to a certain confidence in the work you are doing. And then inspire us to join you in that work. Amen. Amen.